On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. I'm ready as I'm going to be, I guess. like to welcome this episode special guest host, of course, Gene Vogel from the Disciples of the Watch podcast. Gene, I have one question. How often do you get asked, are you the guy who guest hosted on Cobras and Fire a few times? I, you know, at first I got tired of the question, but, uh, you know, because it happens so much, you know, I, when I, every time I was on public, pretty much somebody would point a finger and then, you know, that question would come up and it'd be like, yeah, you know, I've signed enough breasts and everything else, and, but, you know, I'm used to it now. I guess is what I should say. Aren't you the guy? <laughs> you know Baco oh, and Loose Cannon? Yeah. <laughs> I know. that. I'm, that's part of the reason I was glad uh, that uh, that Rock and Pod got canceled, because I thought if I have to go through this down in Nashville. Oh, God, yeah. You you would have been just uh, poking back the, the pre-puss yeah. for us. You know what I mean? Like, you know, it's like because they have to go through you to get yeah, to us. Yeah, that's the thing. The podcast groupies I'm talking about, you know, all those dudes in their mid-40s. Well, what's going on with Disciples of the Watch podcast? Of course, we're all locked down. Uh, have you guys been carrying on? What's been do- what's, what's the haps with you and Nate? Nate ended up uh, getting married, and he went to Jamaica for his uh, reception, or not his reception, for the actual ceremony. And honeymoon, of course, so kind of a two-for-one deal. And then... Uh, Everything, of course, crashed, you know, with the coronavirus. In the meantime, I've been meaning to do solo episodes, but I've been also working. So I got pretty lazy and just uh, kind of set things aside. And Nate, Nate, now, of course, Nate is back in the country. And we're going to be trying to start up again and and get back on track. Actually, we were going to try to meet in the next few days to... uh, to go over some planning and get, and get things back on track for us. We had a couple of great interviews with some local musicians right before everything just went down the tubes. What about outside the podcast? Musically, have you been checking anything out? A whole bunch of stuff, I guess, yeah. I've been kind of all over. Just It's always an open door, you know. I'm looking for new stuff or, you know, just enjoying the stuff that I, that I enjoy. It gets me through the day, you know, and uh, I'm always up for hearing new things and, and uh, new suggestions. So there's there's occasional stuff that'll come up on Facebook or through certain groups or whatnot. Well, let me ask you this: uh, the record we're talking about today is uh, the 2002 album from Jerry Cantrell, his uh, second solo album called Degradation Trip. Before we talked, you hadn't heard this record, is that that? That is correct. Yeah, and uh, same here. I, I I knew the um the the song Anger Rising from uh, radio and MTV a little bit. But I really, because I didn't care for Boggy, De- Boggy Depot, his first record in 98, 
I didn't care for that as much. So I, I really didn't ever get into this record at all, and none of my friends had it. But uh, what about your relation to the artist? Uh, Alice in Chains, Jerry Cantrell, did you come in? Uh, are you a fan of them? I know you're a guitar player. What do you think about him as a guitarist? I, actually, I think Jerry's great. He's He's got... he's. He's very sensible, usually with his leads. He doesn't. He he's he's a sweet lead player. His rhythms are. He comes up with some just knockout stuff. Um, not so much maybe in his solo work. There's a few things, and we'll talk about some of that on this album. Uh, Boggy Depot was a kind of a grower album for me, but I've I've only listened to that one a few times. So, um, but. Not, this album nor Boggy Depot really were on my radar because nobody, none of my friend groups, and uh, I really talked about it, and it didn't really get any real push. You know, like some of the stuff, you know, when you're especially when you're talking about grunge, there's albums that people bring up all times, and then when you're like on the Facebook groups and people are sharing their their record the, the records that they're playing, you're seeing some of the albums that are you know higher on the list that which you're going to eventually get to in your top twenty five discussion, but this one is. Yeah. It's a rarity, man. If I've ever seen it on those those things, it definitely stuck out to me too. It was like, really? Because what are we at? We're at number twenty one with this uh, one. Yes, I think you're right. Number twenty one. To me, that was the one thing that was like got caught my eye because I did the Deep Six record with John Lamoureux, and I almost pushed that one off the list just because I'd never heard of it, and it was a compilation album. I was like, well, we already got the singles movie soundtrack. There was enough that I would allow that. But when I got into that, that, you know, I mean, uh, as anybody that's listened knows now, that is like the 1986 version of all so many, you know, heavyweights from the Seattle scene. You got the Melvins, uh, Soundgarden, you get uh, Green River, who went on to become, uh, went on to become Pearl Jam. You know, I mean, just all these major players involved here. Jack and Dino's band, uh, he, he was a huge producer during all this time. Um, and he had a band called Skin Yard. So, I figured, well, if they're putting this on there, there must be a reason. And so I I have to say, uh, I won't tip my hat too much. I'm glad they did. Uh, let's get into some of the details. This record was released on June 18th, 2002. Um, yeah, and uh, so, yeah, it's almost uh, almost 20 years old. Comes in at a lengthy 72 minutes and 30 seconds. Produced by Jerry Cantrell and a guy named Jeff Tomei, Tomei that I've never heard of. Yeah, the let's talk about the album cover before we get into it. What what a fucked up thing that is. I'm not sure how to describe it. It's a sawed off arm that is puppeting itself. I don't know. It's like a clearly some kind of drug. That's kind of what I here. thought it was as well. Is, is some sort of uh, reference to drugs? The the veins going the the. Uh, strings going into the veins is he pulling veins so the veins are the strings of the puppet hand yeah i that's that's a good question you should have called you should call jerry on that one and and see if you can get him to open up on this yeah he he's not taking my calls right Jesus. now he originally wanted to have Dave Jordan produce us, who did his first two records, but uh, apparently uh, they were not vibing, and eventually he fired him and then at the same time lost his record deal. We'll get into more of the details of uh, what led up to the recording of this, but uh, let's. Uh, are, you, are you ready? Do you have any other thoughts before we get into the track by track here? No, I'd say let's go. All right. Well, the album opens up with a song called Psychotic Break.
unsurprisingly, a very Sabbath-esque riff. Uh, it could be an Alice in Chains record, uh, or something you would include in an Alice in Chains record, a theme that's basically going to carry on from here to the end of the re- uh, record. Uh, spoiler alert, but uh, yeah, I mean, he's like, the lyric in there, thinking about my dead friends, this record came out after Lane Staley died, so it's kind of weird that this album was actually in the can before he did die. Uh, so is he thinking about other dead friends? You know what I mean? Uh, I, 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 I only know the big names from the, the Seattle scene, but he can't be specifically just referencing Kirk Cobain at this point. I mean, uh, maybe he forecasting that Lane is going to die. That's a, that's a good question. <laughs> well, and, and it's, he, yeah, it sounded like with where things were at with Lane and his relationship with Lane that he knew Lane was, it seemed like he knew Lane was, was either, going to be a non-functional human being for the rest of his life or yeah was heading for the grave and jerry has acknowledged that he was dealing with his own uh addiction issues while recording this record he said it was just before he got sober and just before before they died but there is so much going on um lyrically in this record that it almost like <laughs> he traveled back in time to write about uh, the shit that was going to happen like a, a month after the album or just a couple weeks before the record came out. But Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, didn't he dedicate this to, to Lane? Is he it, did, it, yeah. So yeah. he had time to do that, but the record was actually written and recorded you know, for some time. Yeah, it had um, been cut for quite a while because, yeah, like you said, he was – he was having some difficulty with the label, and it sounded like the. Or, you know, then he lost the label, and it was was at least on Roadrunner, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct? That's right. And uh, I saw him on the the tour that preceded this record release, uh, and because he he started touring, you know, with the idea that like eventually he's going to sell the record to some label. But he, he had uh, I got he had the guy from Queensrÿche with him too, uh, uh, DeGarmo. Chris DeGarmo, yeah. Um, so that was a lot of fun. Saw it at First Avenue. DeGarmo did tour with him. Yeah, he did the whole tour. Yeah, oh, he was at nice. the show I saw. Um, I God, I'm sorry. I don't think um, the guys that recorded the record with him uh, uh, shoot the Metallica bass player. Why am I? What are their names? Trio, Robert Trio, Trio, and uh, Mike Borden. Yeah, Mike Borden, who did Ozzy, and of course Faith, Faith No, no More. More. Yeah. But uh, so Slayer, a, a couple weeks ahead of this show, we're in town. And my roommate and I had a whole bunch of uh, our, our, our townie friends come up and stay at our house. We all went and saw Slayer. And afterwards, we walked down to Ryan's. So Slayer was at, uh, yeah, this is, this is very Minnesota specific. Let me just uh, make it more generic and say there was a club nearby that, that uh, played metal and hard rock. We went there after the Slayer show. Uh, the club was called Ryan's, which, of course, you know. Oh, yeah. Uh, we were hanging out and having a good time, and um, the, one of the guys with us, uh, a, a friend of uh, one of our group, walked up to him and uh, and asked him uh, if he could if he could uh, borrow his lighter. And uh, he was talking to a girl at the time, and he's like, "Excuse me," and he goes to my friend. <laughs> Again, we're all friends, and we're all in this group. But he's like, he pulls uh, my buddy Scott up, and he goes, and like gives him right into his ear, and he's like, "Never talk to me." When I'm talking to a chick, and then turns around and goes back and talks to this girl. Anyway, Baco found himself a little squished that night too, <laughs> and I was chatting this gal up, and we were having just a great conversation. I was, of course, charming as fuck as usual, and we made plans to go see this show. Um, I bought the tickets, and uh, the day the show comes up, and 
I open the curtains because uh, I see that she she was picking me up. Uh, oddly enough, I, I can't I can't remember how that was arranged, but yeah, we were we were doing email back in the day, kids. This was all done via email. After that, yeah, she was from a, a town called Saint Cloud, Izzy Presley. But uh, yeah, she shows up. I hear a car door shut, and I look out my window, and I see I don't know what someone about four times the size of Sam Kinison approaching my house. Her chauffeur, and she, she remotely looks like the girl I was talking to after drinking at a Slayer show and then going to a bar. Um, what an awkward situation. Um, and I, I feel bad because I shouldn't say this, but and maybe I shouldn't share this story, but I uh, I was probably the worst date in the world that that night. Well, not in the sense of like, I, look, I paid attention to this stuff, but it was clear early that like I was not – I was not prepared for what came to my door, um, and I, I, I kind of feel bad for her in hindsight. But look, man, things just weren't meant to be. In the end, it worked out. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what happened to her. I meant for anyway, you. Anyway, who cares about um, Any other thoughts on the opening track, Psychotic Break? <laughs> my thought, this was this was odd. I almost, I actually, when I first started listening to this, I went to make sure that I hit the right album because this this one is. Yes. Really, you don't instantly hear like Allison Chains not with, with this? this song. Not that. Not Boom. this was a, this was an odd one. I thought that this is something out of Sweden. I think I'm, I hit the wrong album. Oh come on! And uh, then then it, once it started, but once it started going, then I realized, oh no, okay, everything's good. And Amazon didn't mislabel the album, so <laughs> everything was everything was fine. It's an odd starter, other than it's got you know it's a little bit of that atmosphere. But it, this, of the strength of the song, I thought this doesn't feel like a, an album starter. This almost feels like this should be somewhere stuck in the middle of an album. Was there a song that you thought would have been a better opener? You know, I, I didn't think about it so much, but I guess uh, the single, uh, the first single, I think it was the first single, Anger Rising would have been, you know, something to just really get the thing going. It's like, here's my second solo album, and I'm just going to punch you in the face with a killer track, and then, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll lull you to sleep later. But for, for now, let's... Uh, Let's get something. Let's get some stuff going, or you know, have something. Uh, put an instrumental track, or no, not instrumental, but you know, one of those tracks where it's like track one is like uh, thirty minute, thirty seconds, or a minute of of uh, some sort of ambiance, and then go right into anger rising or something. But yeah, it just was an odd song for me, and never really grabbed me. No, I do think it needs to be looked at as kind of a almost a concept record at times because like he, he they ended up releasing a second edition of this about six months later called degradation trip part one and two in which he resequenced stuff which we'll talk about a little bit more here so i think there was a story trying to be told that he was trying to keep somewhat of it in line because he used it as the opener for both versions oh but, he did uh, i was just going to ask you okay so that's interesting it, up next is Wait, the tracks. Uh, did you rate it? Oh yeah. Um. Uh, how many flannels? Um. Well, oh. now here's uh, you. You took umbrage to uh, me allowing someone else to use decimal points. <laughs> I'm gonna let you go first. Uh, you can use all the decimal points you want. You can break this down to the milla to the hundredth. Like I give it three point seven two ones. Uh, flannel shirts. How many flannel shirts do you give this song out of five? Oh, see, well, actually, I went. I gave this to Doc Martens. Okay, out of Doc. Yeah, I, I, I permit the guests to go their own way as well. Uh, you definitely, you're entitled. So, how many Doc? Just two Doc Martens, not two point one. No, no, I didn't. I, you, I know you did give me uh, freedom to to rate it however <laughs> I wanted to. I didn't go that crazy. Uh, I, although I, I have to admit, I was tempted. I thought maybe I should use quarter points just to, just to. Uh, 
needle you a little bit. See, on on my scale, basically anything, uh, like if it's a three, it means it's worth listening to if you're going to listen to the whole record. Uh, anything below that is means it's worth skipping regardless. Um, so with that, I give this a four. I do think you it is important oh, wow. to the process of, of telling the whole story. I actually like it. I love the the harmony vocals at the beginning. So much of what's what you hear on here is gonna just harken back to uh Allison Chains and it's and and those harmonies are clearly something that Jerry is comfortable with, especially when you look at what they've released, you know, in the last, I don't know, 10 years since they kind of rejuvenated the whole project in 2009 with William Duvall. They've kind of carried on this like dual lead vocal thing on their records. Yeah, I was going to say that's 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 prevalent in my notes as well, because I think in Boggy Depot, he he limited that a little a bit. Little, yeah, more and- than this. Yeah, he did. He, I think he was trying to step away from that and separate himself from Alice in Chains, and and this one, it's like I'm hearing the precursor to Alice in Chains point two or two point oh, I right. should say, because I was surprised when I because I listened to Boggy Depot today, and then I started listening to this and was like, oh wow, he's he's brought that back, and you know he's very good at it too, you know, and him and William Duvall, I mean, when you're talking to Alice in Chains two point oh, you that's uh they they they're so awesome together. But the the Lane character is gone from Alice in Chains. Uh, William Duvall kind of serves as somebody to sing those songs live. And then on the stuff they record now, it's to be more like what Jerry was doing on this record, I think. Sure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm still surprised you rated this one this high, but I, you know... Uh, I know that uh, I think it's like an important you... song. I think it's I actually think it's a decent opener. It's it's not a traditional opener, you know. Um, but what's the first song on Pink Floyd The Wall? That's not a that's not exactly fucking, you know, rise to it by Kiss. It's not I wanna be somebody by Wasp, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know what I guess I didn't look at it as a uh, as a concept album too. Um and, and I think I mentioned it but I, I don't recall, but uh Boggy Depot was uh, that one, and first listen, I, I basically thought, well, okay, this is not really, there's not a lot of substance here. But then when I've gone back to it, I thought, well, wait a minute, this, there's a little bit more to this. So I, I'm curious to see down the road when I come back to Degradation Trip where like this song will come in, if, if it'll grow on me or become important as like, you know, if you, if as you're saying that, uh, there's there's this sequence that you should enjoy these things in and, and go through the lyrics and kind of put together the story that Jerry is telling. Then maybe that song becomes a little bit more prevalent. But right out of the gate, just with my gut instinct on it, I couldn't I couldn't go in anywhere near a three. Okay, that's fine. Look, your ratings are what they are. And uh, with Boggy oh, Depot, yeah. the problem I have is that the cover reminds me of that scene in Swamp Thing where Adrian Barbeau is washing her her very ample breasts, except for it's Jerry Cantrell, and I don't feel like masturbating when I look at it. So I wasn't supposed to? (laughs) Oh, no, no. Uh, To each your own when it comes to self-love. Thank you. All right, well, on to track two, finally. Uh, uh, The uh, awkwardly titled Bargain Basement Howard Hughes.
this one for me was a strong Allison Chains 2.0 sound alike type of track. Um, you know, with the layered vocals, uh, a lot more from than yeah. I'm kind of repeating myself uh, from what I I kind of jumped ahead, I guess, in a way with uh, over what he did on Boggy Depot. Uh, it's a dirty, groovy song. Um, yep. Some and I don't think there was a there was much of this on Boggy Depot. Uh, if I if I remember yeah, correctly. definitely less. This album is far more consistent than that record. Yeah, and this is uh, very sludgy and very grungy. Uh, uh, should I give you my rating, or do you want to? Uh, well, we'll, we'll, we shave, your, we'll save the ratings for the end here, or after okay. after each comment. But go for it. Uh, that's so. Yeah, that's that's my thoughts on it. it was, Same uh, thing. I wrote down more self harmonizing, a la Jerry and Lane. Um, the intro breakdown is really fucking cool. I love that. Yeah. But when you get to verse two, the lyrics sound like he is talking about Lane. Um, I don't know if, and I'm not even sure if you can you find an actual chorus, but. Uh, uh, the third verse uh, lyrics seem to confirm that. So yeah, like in the in the second verse, he basically says, "Stubborn bastard, hard head knocking. We had our good years too. Though apart, you're still in my heart. I'd give anything for you." That's where I was like, "Well, that sounds like he's talking about Lane, basically yeah. being unavailable for him to continue Allison Shane's." But uh, yeah, you get to the end here. Often heard, seldom seen. Bargain basement, Howard Hughes. Hermit phase a woodshed rage. These days, headlines are few. That seems to basically cement that this song is about Lane Staley to me. Good point. Yeah, there. You know, there. Uh, a short story I can give you here, quick. When yeah. uh, my wife and I, we went and saw the band Cold. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. You guys okay? Well, it was an acoustic <laughs> set at, se- at. No, they're on the, they're entry. not that bad of a band. No, I I uh, I like them. I I have no qualms about admitting that I like the band. But they did an, uh, an acoustic set because apparently they didn't know what Seventh Street looked like, and because uh, they they you know Seventh Street entry. Oh, it was at the entry First Avenue. Yes, so they ended up doing an acoustic set and it was great. But uh, Scooter Ward shared a story about meeting Lane because they were touring with Jerry, and when they were in Seattle, he said, "I want to meet Lane," and Jerry's like, "Dude, you really don't want to meet him." And he finally talked to him and got him to come out. And he's, he was saying, because it's hard, I guess it's hard for him to get out there. And I think if I remember correctly, unless I'm blending in two different stories, since it was Halloween, he was able to put on a costume so he could go out in public and not be recognized. Okay. And that's how, part of the reason how this all worked out, for Scooter to meet his hero. And he said it was like he wasn't even the same, or the person that you know you saw coming up through the 90s and who, you know, it was just like he was hollow sunken and just broken. And yeah, it sounds like um, from what Jerry was saying, or he was telling us that Jerry had said was that he was basically kind of just a guy who wanted to stay in his in his house and not ever leave and just kind of was, was Howard Hughes. Well, over the years, I think there's, I, I you'd have a hard time finding an example of a heroin user so self-aware uh, I, I just remember one of the last remarks he, uh, Lane, that I remember reading as far as timeline for him was that like, yeah, there was a time when drugs really worked for me, but now it seems to have gone the opposite way. It's, it's tragic that like he couldn't find help because, you know, it was definitely there and, and, and available, but uh, at least we got this kick-ass Jerry Cantrell record out of it, right? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Okay, how's that for a fucking really awkward segue? Well, um, 
Well, you you led with this one. How many Doc Martens are you giving this one? Well, actually, I changed this one up. I went with three and a half flannel shirts. <laughs> so you're going to throw in random decibel points, go with all <laughs> different grunge ethoses. Fair enough. Fine. I give this one fucking four cups of Starbucks with cigarette butts in them. Ooh, I like the butts. I like big butts. Okay, I can't lie. Yeah, the, the, there's a mood lightener. Uh, all right. Well, the the third track is the uh, the I think I think the opening single on this. Uh, spoiler alert! Love it. It's called Anger Rising. This is Jerry at his best, and this is the only song that I had ever heard uh, before listening to the full album for this uh, journey that we're on here today. The ending, though, with the ooze at the end, that whole thing, boy, they could have they could have cut that off. Uh, that's, I'm that's with you. Yep, the one that one weak spot. It. Yeah, that's the only weak spot I think on this song, and it did affect my rating. Um, you were going with a five as a max, correct? Correct. So this one, I would say, I'll, I'll go with, uh, I'll give it four and a quarter cups of Starbucks with uh, <laughs> pouring a little bit out of it for that week ending. Well, finally, some uplifting uh, lyrics from uh, Jerry. Alabama trailer park, they call home. Boys standing at attention in the corner of zone. Terrified, there's a scorpion crawling on the wall. By the way, Father, could you please beat me some more? Uh, just an uplifting, like, kumbaya kind of moment. Uh I, I, I don't know what else to uh, – what more could you we want, right? I don't think there's anything more you could want. I love this fucking track. It's dark as fuck, but the um tempo kind of works with it. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's almost got like a happy like like groove, but it's just uh, – because it's kind of a, a minor key, it, it still kind of gives you that classic Alice in Chains tune or tone that, that, that I don't know, at least I would crave. But – yeah. So far, three tracks in, no blistering Jerry Cantrell solos. These are all kind of, I don't know, what do you want to call them, melodic, kind of simple. Um, they're more um, geared towards carrying one part of the song to the next part than it is to kind of like, you know, show a little bit of that kind of fire that uh, he can put out there. Yeah, that's that's what I was thinking as well, that it's more just service the song than it is to, to provide any flash. 
Which, now, nothing wrong with that. No, definitely not. Um, sometimes, you know, like a, a Yingvi Malmsteen can learn from that. That sometimes maybe a less is more. In my notes here, I got that Chris DeGarmo is actually featured on this one as well, this song. Oh, yeah, he played it, I believe, from additional notes, guitar was, uh, on Anger Rising. Yes. Uh, I give it uh, 4.83 bummed cigarettes. Bummed even, nice. Yeah, they have to be bummed. Uh, they have to be, yeah. From a stranger. Uh, bummed in the shadow of Mount Rainier. How about that? Uh, you don't get grungier than that. <laughs> you got nothing. All right. All right. Well, let's move on to Angel Eyes, the power ballad of the album. It's an Allison Chains type of song. Really? That's that's how I feel. But then it immediately falls. It, I mean, it may, it's just like the the intro is. It kind of has that vibe of of stuff that Jerry would do with Allison Chains, and then then it immediately shifts away from that. And but when it does that, it also my interest level falls away as well. And from uh, from what I saw too, that this was released as a single, and I'm kind of curious as whose idea that was. Yes, yeah, it's, it's the uh, second single on the record, I believe. Yeah, I think Inger Rising was the first, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, what's he talking about here? Like a girl uh, that that is dead. It's either a, a someone that's died or a relationship that has ended. Um, it's but it's yeah it's it, I think it, he may even leave it a little bit subjective, so the listener can kind of apply their maybe their own personal uh, piece to it. I don't know, it says like uh, in the pre-chorus, she said, I forgive you. Don't regret our time. You've, you've got to move on, love. You know, and then, then further on. Uh, yeah, that definitely sounds Angel like that. Yeah. And then chor- the chorus is Angel Eyes, four years and still I dream, agonize, such beauty not since seen. And then the second verse going into bow down, Piper leading, you were one, hungry, took the prize, then you got dumb. Yeah, so dumb being like uh, you overdosed on drugs. Yeah. Uh, or you know, this is in- all about like uh, entering a dog named Angel into the Westminster uh, uh, d- dog show, you know, where you're oh, like, wait. then you got dumb, you went and smelled some judge's crotch. I think you cracked the code. Hmm. I'm a code cracker. 
you, you're on something. <laughs> cracking codes. I mean, you crack, you, <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm either on crack or cracking a code. Those are the two things. All right. Well, um, I gave this one. This is another four for me. Really? Wow. I gave this one two space needles. <laughs> nice. You know, hopefully this inspires future episodes of whatever. Never mind that. Like, see, you can take it where you want it. Uh, but I really, I, I'm really bummed considering all the pissing and moaning I heard about the old decimal point that we're all just ones, twos, threes, and fours. It's early. Okay. <laughs> so two space needles from Gene Vogel. Uh, let's get to track five. This is called Solitude. This is a little mellower track. Hurting yourself feels good, right? And that's kind of one of the lyrics out of there. Um, Jerry is uh, one of the best acoustic players, I think, uh, and and that doesn't get talked about enough because you know between the the the, the sap EP and the jar of flies, and then you know some of the work on, on on the studio records, and of course the unplugged episode, and then his solo stuff. He is just an amazing. Uh, not just player, but he writes great acoustic parts. Uh, he, it is. I don't know. To me, this is a fun song to listen to uh, because it's so upbeat, like everything else on this record. But yeah, I, to me, I, I really did. It was hard to to move away from how good the the guitar playing was. And that's one thing too. Sometimes uh, guitar players they're so married to the tone of their electrical devices that they can't find a voice in an acoustic instrument right it seems but you know there's some that a lot a lot can and some excel at it more than others and jerry is one of those that uh yeah when he it doesn't matter whether or not that's an electric instrument or not um as far as the guitars go uh he can he can excel in both and he does he does very well with that uh though i almost feel like something in his acoustic work on this album is still a little bit off or lacking I don't know if it's if it's he wasn't doing multiple tracking or something. There's just something about it that's not quite there. Because I went back and listened to um, Sap, and 
the the acoustic stuff on there right away just was was stronger for me as far as the tone and the sound and however it was recorded and that may be it too is is uh maybe the money wasn't there for like it was for Allison Chains for him to do some of the stuff he may have done uh previously or maybe he wanted to get away from some of that unless unless uh something's wrong with my ears but i i could swear that there's something that's just not quite up to uh to my standards of what Jerry Cantrell can do Oh, I've actually just confirmed that there is something wrong with your ears Good because point. this sounds fucking amazing. Uh, I have zero complaints with the guitar tone throughout the entire record or the production. I, I, I think uh, if I have any complaint, it's that he didn't let uh, the rhythm section kind of be themselves a little bit. He kind of, if anything, uh, and I think uh, Truio would, would, would back it up. That while he enjoyed working on the record, he was basically forced to kind of stick to what uh, Jerry wanted him to do, and I don't, I, I don't hear a lot of invent, inventiveness in the in the drums either. But you that know, that's not you, you, not to say that the, they don't sound good. They just you know they don't carry. Yes, that you actually you actually stole some of my thunder and my my ending notes of the album. Oh. I had this the same exact idea. Is uh, I'm going through this and I'm like, these guys do not stand out. These are not the same guys that we've learned throughout the years, uh, uh, how phenomenal of musicians they are. Jerry could have just got some studio guys to do this. He didn't, the only thing he's gaining by having these guys in the studio is their name recognition. And that is it. Cause they are not shining like they would normally do. But that said, uh, another, uh, I don't know, uh, well, 4.2 trips to the sound garden in Seattle. I only, I give this one two heroin needles. (laughs) And you went, you're the first one of us to go dark. Another great uh, song title, one of those ones that you never forget, is the next track. Mother's Spinning in Her Grave, Glass Dick Jones. You got to say that slower, that last part. Uh, uh, Glass Dick Jones. Mother's spinning in her grave because she can't say. Plastic Jones. Now, I'm assuming that's a reference to a crack pipe. Well, uh, either that or a glass dildo that you, you know, maybe you stick in, in an orifice or suck on once in a while. I guess if you're. <laughs> if or you're what if your name for... is Dick Jones and you live in glass? Feed the glass, Dick Jones. <laughs> this is going nowhere. <laughs> Mother spinning in her grave because she can't say. So here's, well, here's the line. Glass cuts up your hide, black mark on your soul, burning up your life. Feed the glass Dick Jones. It's been a long time since I've done some smack. Where does the glass come in? Just the pipe you're talking about? 
Yeah, that's what I'm assuming. It's uh, that's that was my assumption. Uh, sounds like a mother who's, you know, in a way that's that's um, she can't save you, you because you couldn't leave it alone. So maybe this is uh, Tulane's mother. Yeah, and again, that's how I read it. But maybe he's talking to his own mom because he said he was going through his own struggles at this time. Yeah, exactly. So it's it's somebody who's dealing with uh, the glass dick and uh, can't get enough of that. They're jonesing for it, and the mother's spinning in the in her grave because she can't tame the uh, you the you need to be a dog. The dog, sorry. Doesn't it feel at this point that this really is almost like uh, a darker sequel to Dirt? Like, this is kind of picking up where the, the theme of that record and is actually taking us even deeper into a dark area. You know, that's an interesting co- idea. That's, it's unfortunate, though, that it's not as strong of an album hmm. as Dirt. Well, I think it's stronger than Tripod, but I don't want to get into that yet. This song I, I liked a lot too. I I I, I want to go fours almost across the board so far, but uh, I'll go three point eight on this one. Wow, yeah, this one, this one for me, I gave it one point five shots of express, espresso. <laughs> for me, this was the worst track on the album, uh, at least to this point, as I was going through it. And actually, now that I'm looking at my ratings, that is, this one for me was the. But it's odd because. There's there's something weird about it. Something that's uh, yeah, it pulls uh, you in, man. As I was listening to it, I'm like, the more I'm listening to it, the less I like it. But it, there's almost feels like there's there's a, there's a point where I might go, okay, now I want to hear that again. But as I, and I was waiting for that moment for for it to win me over or something to happen where it clicked. Oh, you know, sometimes a groove. I know what you're saying too. And, there, I mean, a lot of what on this record feels like it's missing is Lane Staley. Like a lot of these songs feel like they're heading somewhere that, that they don't get. Uh, as much as I love this, I, I I I'll praise this album towards the end here, but there is that element of like some of these songs. It's like, okay, I thought you were really gonna you you had me but you didn't quite go to the next thing. You know what I mean? Um, And that sounds contradictory considering I've basically given it a 3.8 all the way through at this point on average. But this song is definitely one of those. It's, it, there, it's just missing like a bridge or a a fuller chorus. And maybe that's something that like, if he was writing the, the the album with Lane and not just on his own, because like he hold up for a while. We'll get into that here. And, it would have been, you know, that that added element that the the record's missing. That or he needed maybe um, some other guys to bounce ideas off because, like, if if he's with work with Trujillo, Trujillo and uh, and Mike Borden, and he's basically just giving them their marching orders, you know, maybe there's not that pushback that maybe he needs. Maybe with this album, he had a chip on his shoulder and wanted to prove something because, you know, this song, you know, came in with what twenty five songs. They had to pare it down. When Roadrunner said, "Bring it down to 14. And that's still a bit much. Yeah. Um, but uh, you gave it, I, I forget, how many uh, jacked up heroin needles did you give this one? No, this was one and a half shots of it. Oh, that's what it was. Okay. Well, then um, the, the side one of what we're calling side one wraps up with a song called Hellbound.
We're back again with Jerry, sounding like Jerry, and uh, I was so glad, especially after that last track. Uh, the great, the song has got a great structure, excellent interplay with the music and the verse structure. I totally dig it. It lost a little bit later on when the the was like a verse or a pre-chorus into and then into the chorus. It's pretty promising. It's not too shabby of a song. The bridge melody on this tune, man. Finally, we get a song with a bridge. It is just fucking killer. What'd you rate this one? Another four. I gave this one three angst-filled angst filled teens. <laughs> All right. Well, that wraps up side one. So your first solo effort, um, Boggy Depot, was a little bit of a... Uh, it was a little bit different than, than um, you know, the traditional Alice in Chains sound. This, this new record, Degradation Trip, is more similar uh, are people respond how are people responding to it it's overall? been going over really well and actually we did a lot of shows before i even got it signed with roadrunner and uh you know i mean uh it's great stuff to play live and people respond to it even though they hadn't known it now that they're getting the time to actually uh get into it you know it's this response has been great and of course you know when we play the alice stuff uh you know people really flip out on that stuff and, oh, yeah. and i enjoy playing it you know we hadn't got to play it for a long time so so we heard that Degradation Trip was going to be a, a, a double album, right? but it's only one record, so just, can mm -hmm. we expect Volume 2? Volume 2 is going to be, uh, Volume 1 and 2 together, as I intended it, are going to be released, uh, I believe, November 19th. Oh, wow. And the reason that it came out as a single was pretty much Roadrunner's call, and uh, they wanted to condense it down to, uh, to one disc, and, and that was definitely not what I wanted to do. But. Oh, right. uh, but it was a compromise I made going to a new label, and, and uh, as long as I had the word that they were going to put it out at some point, uh, not too far off in the future, as a complete body of work. So, and that's they definitely kept their word, and, and uh, I'm happy about that. That's good. Yeah. It's good when people keep their word. And yep. Well, before we get into side two, let's just talk about grunge. Oh, the overall thing. Let's talk about the scene. What were you doing before grunge broke? Like, what were you listening to? What was your kind of go-to? artists that before grunge kind of hit well uh metallica was pretty important to me back then i was just discovering i think i was just well yeah i want to i want to say i was just about to discover overkill if i hadn't at that point i was a little bit of a late bloomer on that one and yeah just a big time into the thrash scene and a lot you know some of those 80s bands you know as well carried over for me as as we were going into, the, into this and uh of course everything kind of broke. And then with uh, the the mindset of the group that I was in, we basically kind of had to, we had to pick a side and we weren't on the side of uh, any of the grunge stuff, which, you know, is kind of weird. I know, you know, I guess when you're young, you're dumb. So, so be it. But I just remember a, a few people in our group or just maybe outside of our circle going to see uh, some of these bands and seeing them at smaller venues and they were probably uh, all the better for it you know they probably got sure. to see some pretty kick-ass shows um i did get to see alice in chains on the thrash of the titans tour in oh me too did you go to trot air I, that's right yes i did I, I all right buddy we're eskimo brothers <laughs> yeah that's right and more than ways than one yeah <laughs> thanks loose cannon yeah oh. <laughs> alice in chains for me was a band that was a little bit different because they they had their own feel and uh, this was before i even i think even before i heard soundgarden i don't remember the, the whole right. timeline but i do remember man in the box being constantly played um 
probably on MTV and, and radio. There was an edge to them and there was something about that. And even Scott Ian was like, these guys were more metal than most metal bands because they'd go out and they'd open before Anthrax, Slayer, and Megadeth. And they would put up with the slings and arrows of all the people in the crowd that didn't want anything to do with a quote-unquote grunge band. And they went out and they gave it back to everybody in spades. And he's like, that's fucking metal. Now, that tour was before grunge really broke. Yeah. And our crowd was at least decent to him. Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't see anybody have any issues. I, I remember it vividly. I remember Lane was like almost hypnotic, like watching him. And I, I didn't know much about the band. I was like, you know, but I, I, I was fixated on him. And I remember he kind of like held the mic almost nonstop and would just kind of rotate his head in this weird almost figure eight fashion. But really? See, I. I... I basically was waiting to hear Man in the Box, I think, and I wasn't paying a whole lot of attention because it's like, well, they're that band from Seattle, and that's uh, that they got that one good song. <laughs> I was waiting for one thing, buddy. Slayer! <laughs> I wasn't even a Slayer fan at that point. You know, the, the weird thing is, like, I got into uh, Thrash in 1990, and I bought all in to grunge by early 92 and i was still riding high on thrash so thrash and and grunge for me kind of melded together i quickly turned my back on the weaker uh the the lower hanging fruit of the hair metal era you know what i mean i I was just like nope it was a joke it was stupid this is real this is legit man i got fucking tennis shoes and i got jeans and i got flannel and i could fit in any of these bands without changing clothes (laughs) i could be in a fucking music video dressed like i am this is the way it is that's how i felt nice yeah, okay, I, nice. I, I wish I would have been a lot more open-minded about some of that stuff back then, but I, I don't yeah, know. I don't know that I would call myself open-minded because I basically closed the door on a whole bunch of really great music. But You know, and I know you, you bring this up, and I'm sure we'll talk about it later, but the uh, that scene had been so abused by the record industry that it had been milked to death. Oh, right, yeah. and it, I, I don't regret a lot of it, but you know, the fact of the matter is just being so... Whatever, you're young and you're doing what you're doing. You know, I mean, I was also like, you know, I, I was really enjoying this new music and being part of it, but I also wanted to be accepted as part of that scene. And part of that was part of like basically just becoming kind of like, I mean, it's weird how Beavis and Butthead kind of be like the death nail for bands like Winger. Yeah. I mean, it's like, well, <laughs> these are two fucking jackasses who wear Metallica and ACDC shirts. And that's the reason Winger is not cool. I mean, that does seem kind of ironic, but at the same time, when you when you were there, it totally made sense. It felt right at the time. <laughs> it definitely it feels right looking back. I I, I it, it, I'm just saying it, it it there is some juxtaposition to be made there. But well, when did you? I mean, are you still like fuck grunge, or are you more open to the whole thing? No, I'm definitely more open. I've I've gone back. Um, I'd say within. God, I want to say in in is is we get into the two thousands, just because I I there was so much music to to listen to, and when you think you've heard it all, there's so much you you've missed out on, and all right, I I started to dig into some of these bands, especially ones that I'm constantly hearing people bring up, uh, that it's like, well, okay, I've heard the stuff that they constantly play in the radio, but like the Melvins, what do those guys sound like? I don't think I've ever heard them on the radio. And but you know sometimes some of those bands will shock you because you'll hear a song and go oh that's those guys not the Melvins 
but you know, some like for the me, I don't think the Melvins was one of those bands. But I'm just bringing up, you know, some some examples of just going through and and kind of like, did I miss out on something because of my closed mindedness, or because maybe I just it it passed me by and I was so focused on other things that I never got to it, you know, and especially when when before the internet. If if you didn't have a friend that played it and you didn't have it on the radio and you didn't have, well, I didn't have MTV, but I've had friends that have MTV. And if we happen to be at their house when MTV is on, then I may have seen some of these videos. And this was on, you know, Friday night videos on, a, was it NBC or whoever the hell was playing Friday NBC night and Friday night videos, yeah. And for those not aware, Shakopee, Minnesota is basically like living in Canada when it comes to cable television. <laughs> well, I was in Burnsville at the time. I grew up in Burnsville. Let the joke sit, Gene. Jesus Christ! <laughs> Shakopee had running water. What did you guys have down there? Was it Oatana or? Oh, oh we were, were still pumping. We were we were pooping in boxes, man. <laughs> like like cats. <laughs> <laughs> did you scoop your own, or did somebody in the family? I I never scooped my own. You fucking rebel. L- let me talk a little bit about the making of this record. So basically, Jerry says. That he he holed himself up for three to four months in the late nineties, and just got on a writing trip. In, in his words, he would send out for food. I think that must be a euphemism for drugs. But he admits that this was the time that he was probably at his worst addiction on his own, which might have been why it was easy for him to tap into a lot of those themes. Again, I I, I say this band has always been one of the most self aware drug bands of all time. And and just like Lane, Jerry had a very beautiful he could make some of the darkest fucking things. He could sing it and and, and phrase it in a very beautiful way. And I think this album is littered with that. Uh, during the process, like I said, he was working with Dave Jordan and that fell apart. He didn't like the way that was going, so he ended up producing it with himself in the and Marissa Tomei, I think is is his name. He had to basically go around and shop this record and he was like kinda irritated because for the first time in his life he didn't have his band. He had one band and one label. And now his label dropped him, and he goes around and hears all these people telling him, oh, we love what you hear, and then you never hear a call back. Eventually, Roadrunner picked it up. He had, like you said, I think it's 25 or, or up to 30 songs, and they're like, pare it down to 14, and he's like, no, 15, hot in the shade. So the album did come out, uh, but like I said, oddly, six months later with called Degradation Trip Part 1 and 2. And we're only dealing with the actual release of the record, but I'll tell you this. As far as the songs on this record, uh, track three, Anger Rising, was actually on side two. Uh, It was replaced by a a song called Owned. Basically, tracks eight, nine, ten, eleven, and twelve, which we're about to get into, were all songs from part two. And all those songs moved to disc two. So those are the big changes. So let's get to side two. What do you think? As far as going forward or of side two? As far two. as going to side two. <laughs> Let's do it. All right. It opens up with uh, a pretty upbeat kind of acoustic riff on a tune called Give It a Name.
To me, this one sounds like an Alice in Chains filler track. Um, I felt like it was a, par- a fairly mediocre You're a song. filler track. <laughs> I used to like my mom. Uh, uh, she must be hairy. <laughs> if you only knew. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't, uh, wasn't so much a strong song for me. Well, it is almost kind of happy, though, considered everything else. You know, there is uh, an old Beatles trick that, like, yeah, name a song and you sing that title in the first line, you know, like She Loves You or, uh, um, God, there's so many. <laughs> Why am I drawing a blank? Do you think he was kind of falling into that? He's like, the Beatles did it. He says it quite a bit. In the song, and there's no chorus. It's just he's constantly every every other line is given a name. It starts out with. It does seem this record could do uh, oh a little touch up on chorus work on a handful of songs, don't you think? I would totally agree with that. If he brought this back with with the the Allison Chains guys right now, I bet you they could definitely improve this album. I, I think this is a a drug record written by a drug addict that probably could have been re- helped by his co-drug addict at the time. I think if he tried to punch in a couple, of, well, basically f- three more sober people who didn't play on it, you can't really recapture the vibe and the feel with people who really weren't dealing with the same thing. I don't think Jerry can kind of reconnect with it yeah, uh, as much not. as he was part of it, you know. So... On that sense, I, yeah, I would 100% disagree with you. Yeah, William Duvall would only make this worse. So would Sean Kinney. And, of course, I've already said Michael Inez is basically just Bobby Dahl in a, in a, in a, oh. with a better hairdo. Oh, wow. All right. I, I actually don't mean that, but I, that was okay. kind of a good line, though, right? I, I, yeah, it was a good line. No, he's a much better bass player than Bobby Dahl. I'm a better bass player than Bobby Dahl. Sorry, Bobby. All right, so yeah, I give this one about uh, three three flannel. Uh, uh, I, I get I give three pairs of ripped jeans with uh, long underwear showing through. This one I gave two and a half dirty sweaters. <laughs> you came more prepared than I did. I threw you a curveball. You weren't prepared for what I was going to do to you. That's what I'm asking for, baby. All That's right, well, track two is a song called Castaway.
guitar melody riff on this thing. I think, it's, again, like most of the record, I think it's recorded great. But uh, so far, this is my least favorite song. Yeah, this one, like so many of them, it starts off pretty good. And I, I really like this one especially that starts off strong. It breaks up the monotony from the previous track. Um, it's more of that Dirty Jerry sound. Uh, the, but the song really never goes anywhere. And it doesn't inspire me to want to hear it again anytime soon. Good point. <laughs> and uh, this one I gave uh, two unwashed heads of hair. Yeah. This this castaway wouldn't even leave the island with uh, Tom Cruise. Yeah, he would have left that back on the Or Tom island. Cruise was like, yeah, Tom you're staying. Cruise. You sorry. mean Tom Hanks. I'll send, I'll send someone for you. You mean Tom Hanks. I, I'm sorry. Between me and this volleyball, there's just not room for you, castaway song. You mean Tom Hanks. Uh, well, I gave this one uh, two. Yeah, this is my lowest rating on the record. Uh, oh, uh, this is um, two regretful evenings with that girl you met. You mean Tom Hanks? <laughs> At the, <laughs> after a case of Rainier. All right, so the next song is called "She Was My Girl." This could have been an, a Stone Temple Pilots track, if you ask me. <laughs> Copacetic, calm my frenetic, she's a shit, y'all. I don't know. She is highly rated, well-educated, she's an angel. Got nothing, Gene? No, I I was letting you go. I thought you were going to rip the whole thing out. (laughs) She's ambitious, beautiful, delicious, got a restaurant. That doesn't even when you say that, it, it, and the way that it ends with "got a restaurant," it doesn't really fit. That's very much Wyland. Huh. That's a good point. That's interesting. I never thought of it that way. It seems like he's talking about um, almost like Lane Lane spiraling towards death, and he's shitting at everybody around him. And again, I always because we know what happened, right, with Lane. And I know these lyrics are written before that, but this really sounds like this is basically Lane speaking about like how he's trying to use logic to get rid of his woman who doesn't want to do drugs anymore. Well, I almost wonder if it's a reference to drugs. Okay, like heroin is a woman, huh? Yeah, because ever playful, hook my hook the jumper cable, give me a fresh spark. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting interpretation. I mean, it's wrong, but that's fine. I'm used to it. <laughs> no, no for- actually, I like where you're going there. Uh, just jealous, you know what I mean? And I, you know, when I'm jealous, I deflect. I I know. I, I trust me. I know. 
I listen to your, I listen to your show. <laughs> I've been here before. So this one for me, this one reminds me of another song. As soon as I heard it, I'm like, okay, the the vibe here, and you you kind of talked about the way he's going through that lyric and lyrically. As soon as it goes, and he uses the word copacetic, I'm like, he's singing. He he. This is a on loan from the from the song copacetic from local age. I don't think that I, I he might have been like inspired to use the word by that but no I'm, to me listen to the you got to listen to the listen to the song itself. Just the way he bounces the bounce of it there's something cuz as soon as it started going I'm like this seems familiar and then when he says the word copacetic I'm like oh my god this is that this is like he All was right, fair enough. influenced by that song. To me, this is where I decided this is clearly a concept record. And now we're dealing with a, a personal relationship, maybe it's with a, a woman who wants you to clean up or a drug that wants you to keep doing it. Either way, this song works for that. Th- this whole record is just dark as fuck, and I love it. Nobody does that better than Jerry, or other than maybe Jerry and Lane when they work together. Yeah. Five fucking Doc Martens. Wow. I give this one two and a half holy pairs of jeans. Yeah, you go fuck yourself, Gene. Uh, you fuck your own right holy Gene. Well, now that we're past that, uh, the next song is called Chemical Tribe. Should I live so long To see him dropping bombs Hope I have you near Check out what comes after
there's there's a, a glut of these songs on this album that's like it, it can grab you from the beginning and then all of a sudden things just kind of twist and it Agree. didn't take that long um it does pretty well until the pre-course and that's where it kind of loses me and the, the chorus brings it back a little bit but yeah it's it's and it, why is, is the damn thing six and a half minutes plus the length didn't matter to me too much because uh, Allison Chains did a lot of that stuff. But the songs uh, are more interesting usually. If you can keep you. Uh, well, that's where I think you're missing Lane here. But uh, oh, that's a good point. I think this should have been the follow up to Dirt. When I listen to this whole record, I'm like, there is so much missed opportunity here. It is a fucking killer record, but. It would be so much better if it was something that they did with Lane while they're both kind of still in the game. Now, I understand there's reasons why that didn't happen. I'm just saying, if you're asking me to, to, to break this shit down, this by the time I got to this, I mean, I'm 11 songs deep on a fucking 14-track record going. This is the record that they should have done after Dirt. The chorus conjures Lane... Uh, with that line about no last supper, right? But he says right like he's saying a question, but it's like an actual R I T E, like uh, like a like a uh, a priest would do over you as you're dying, and yeah, the bridge is killer. Uh, I give this a four point seven uh, dollars overspent at uh, Starbucks. Uh, this one I gave uh, two and a half crop top sleeveless shirts. All right. Well, the next track is Spider Bite. This is another one that's another one of those, man. It comes out right out of the gate, and it's like, oh, this is awesome. It's that it's got that dirty, sexy guitar that kicks in, and then that's right where I become tumescent. Just, oh, it's, it's great. The chorus is the weak part of the song, though, and that's a bummer because it had so much promise as, as, as up until that point. Um, and just past the halfway point, I don't know what, what you'd call it, if it's a bridge or whatever it is, it takes this really weird turn, but only for a moment. But it just, it takes all that and just kind of just stops the song. I almost I thought I was starting another song. I went and looked at the track. I'm like, wait, no, this is still that same song. There's just a weird disjointed kind of break. 
and uh, it just feels like they crammed something in there to make something different or to be, I don't know why, what they were thinking. But uh, luckily the, that kick-ass riff comes right back in and kind of helps save the song. Um, I This one, I almost wonder with multiple listens, it, it's either going to do, the, it's either going to grow or you get tired of that, that, that moment where it's like, why did they do that? Why do they do that? You know, if it, if it becomes a problem, then it, the song is broken. Word for word, how, how I would get into it. He uses the word cane. I, I, I don't know. I assume it's cocaine. I had the same line about that, that, that breakdown there, that, that it just, it kind of brought the song to a halt. Uh, the slow chorus did not work for me at all either. But yeah, it comes back and it almost like uh, makes you forget that that little party. It, it kind of, uh, I don't know, rejuvenates itself. So I don't know. I had it. Uh, this is uh, when I have it three. I have three plaid cargo pants on this one. <laughs> All right. Well, we're getting towards the end of the record. The second to last track we have locked on. This one grabbed me from the opening riff. The lyrics cement my belief. This record is about a downward spiral of Lane and his his problems with uh, heroin and the the eventual death. Of course, it has that line, uh, "Faded rock star push a needle." You know, uh, th- there's just too much here that basically says he knows what's happening, and sadly, it was almost uh, Nostradamus like in how it predicted. The 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 sad end to one of the, uh, probably my favorite grunge singer. This could very easily be an Alice in Chains song. It, it breaks away from that vibe a little bit though on the pre-chorus, um, but it's all Jerry, and it grew on me as it played out. It was one of those songs that that as it was going, I I kind of you know once you get you know, a vibe for the song, you know you, you start to get yeah. those numbers in your head, and you're like, okay, this one's gonna be this, and sometimes you get to a point where like in the last song where you hit that break and all of a sudden it goes, it's it's such a left turn that you go, well, now I got to dock at a few points because what the fuck is that? This one didn't have any of those kind of points, but as it was, as it was rolling along, I'm like, wait a minute. Okay, the, I'm going to bump this one up a little bit because as it's progressing, 
I'm getting into this, and I could easily see this one even become an even stronger song down the road as, as I would give it multiple listens. Agreed. I have this at uh, four and a half. This one I gave three and a half pairs of combat boots. Because <laughs> your that, Doc like Martens said, have already been used. <laughs> yes, I already used the Doc Martens. Uh, and this one, boy, you know, I could, I, I would, I would almost wonder if I listened to this next week if I could bump this up to a four. It was, it, it kind of grew on me that quickly, in in that listen while I, as I was taking my notes that I thought, yeah, this one, this one could be one of those good strong songs off this album that, that could be one of the the contenders for top track. The album closes with a a song called Gone, and, and I want to read some of these lyrics because I think they're uh, I don't know I think they're pretty heavy. But let's uh, let me get into it here. All dreams have died along the way. I coughed up the price. I bought a cage. I had a hell of a time since I went away. Don't know when I died or where to lay down. Gone, gone away. God knows I've tried. I've died in pain. Yet simple, yet drive the freedom to say. I've had a hell of a time since I went away, homing on traces of light that distance fades. So they say with time we slowly heal. I caught a flash of your smile through a fog of a dream. I have a hell of a time, I can clearly say. I can't be by your side. I'll help you when I sleep. And that seems to me like a metaphor of uh, basically someone who is helplessly dying. Uplifting way to end this fucking positive as fuck record. Yeah, <laughs> it's a. Uh, it was. I was kind of wondering as it as it was going. I'm like, okay, how is he going to wrap this up? And it, he decided that he was going to be uh, tugging at your heartstrings or kind of going in that dark, kind of moody vein. And I I really dug that. I mean, it's a. It's actually a very hard song to hear, but. On on the volume one, volume two, this song is track twelve. It's the halfway point. Huh. It is like it's like holy fuck because this sounds when you when you hear it and you read those lyrics, it's like this is the end. And yeah. then then it comes out six months later. It's like no no, no we're only halfway there. Well, I'm glad they put it on this on this uh, volume one or wherever the hell it was degradation trip before they did that whole uh, part one and part two uh, sequence. Because this is, um, yeah, I, I thought this was a pretty damn strong song. And it's funny because I had been, it's almost like Pavlov's dog or something. I kept, as the song started, I'm waiting for the moment where it does something that fucks up the song yeah. completely for me. <laughs> and it never did. But I, I was waiting. The whole time I'm listening to it, I was just waiting, going, okay, when's he going to do something that's going to be twisted and weird or kind of muck up the track? Yeah, this one's a five for me, man. 
what I have in my notes is I gave it four Courtney Love baby doll dresses. <laughs> but in hindsight, I'm Can I change mine to five uh, prom night dumpster babies? My fanny needs a blanket and somebody to spank it. I miss my mom. But she's at the prom. So I'm a prom night dumpster baby. Prom night dumpster baby. Ba, 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 ba. And I'm taking a stroll. He's taking a stroll. I'm taking a stroll. He's taking a stroll. I'm taking a stroll. <laughs> Absolutely. Knowing that it's available on like a $35 two disc colored vinyl, does that uh, enhance any of your ratings? <laughs> <laughs> no. And I would be, oh boy, have you uh, listened to both? Uh, to the up, uh, whatever you call the re-release, the part ones and two. I have not. No, I've only I, I only I, I stuck to the like I said. I mean, you know what, Gene? This seems like a good point to get to our closing thoughts. And since I want you to have the last word, is it okay if I give you my my overall view on the album? Please. All right. Well, my thoughts are basically when this was released in 2002, the Alice in Chains influence was huge in music. If you look at it at the time with bands like Nickelback, Days of the New, Creed, even to fucking Disturbed and Three Days Grace, Breaking Abel or Saving Benjamin. Uh, Godsmack was named after a song of them. There's for fuck's sake. But uh, this album would have actually have had a hard time, I think, competing because of all that, which is weird to me. Because those bands don't exist without that. But uh, there's so many examples of that, you know, when you look at music history. Uh, But uh, this is a follow-up to Dirt in in many ways to me. The further spiral into the grasp of drug addiction. This gets more personal than Dirt. This, This sounds so much like he's lyrically lamenting the decline and eventual death of not only his band, but his band singer, Lane Staley. It's a lost gem in my mind. I actually feel after, you know, digesting it for the last week and a half that I I missed out on fucking two decades of enjoying this album. It's not the greatest record I've ever heard, but it is better than the last uh, Alice in Chains album. It is the best. I think it's better than the, the three records they've done since. Uh, but there just isn't that one, like, the one thing this record is missing is that those two or three just grab you moments. It's all kind of, I don't know, plateaued and flatlined throughout. It's great. It sounds good. And I think people should dig into it if they haven't, if they love this kind of music anyway. But it doesn't have that man in the box or down in a hole. Or for, if you want newer references, it doesn't have that um, uh, California song. You know, that that kind of feel. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. You know, um because even on the newer records, there's there's a handful of things like uh, that just really pop and and get you, and and that seems more the their format. Other than I think the first record in Dirt, Dallas and Chains. Well, there's only one of their albums. <laughs> the point being is that like I think this is a great record. I think it should have been heard more by myself for sure. And I think if you like the record Dirt, this is a great follow up, especially if you listen to it like I did by about track five. With headphones on going, what if Lane Staley was involved? This would have just probably been, I don't know, I think it would have blown dirt away. That's pretty strong. I actually really like the point you're making regarding the, uh, like a sequel to Dirt. Or maybe it's, 
I'm almost wonder if this is his dirt. I, you know, Lane with Lane contributing with uh, into dirt and, and Lane's lyrics and that he with the songs that he wrote, uh, I should say on dirt. Um, I wonder if if uh, this is Jerry's solo version of dirt in a fashion. Um, he can tell his own story in his own words, and he he can he can do it without having to check with anyone. You know, like I said earlier, this is his baby, and he's he is unchecked on this record. I'll agree with that. Uh, so that's an interesting point of view, and and uh, now I, I I think when I go forward from this point on to listen to this album again, which I should do, is um, I I will kind of I guess I'll frame it in that kind of that that mindset, um, and of course, like so many albums. Um, you know, with multiple listens, they can easily grow on you or they can grow, you can grow away from them. And uh, I know some of these songs would definitely grow on me. I even meant, I, I pointed a few of them out, even like uh, that final song there, um, Gone. Uh, that one could easily be uh, maybe one of the best non Alice in Chains, uh, Alice in Chains songs. Right. The, the album comes out at 50 but it never gets up to a hundred or there's not those songs that bring it up to that level to where you go, boy, I will listen to this album just for those songs, those two songs on the album. And then, but every time you go, those, those songs that are down in the 50 level start to bump up to 75 just because of those uh, other hundred songs that you, you will just ingest an album for. Um, right. You know, uh, Check my brain is a great example of a song where you hear that and right out of the gate, that song just puts its hooks into you and you're like, okay, I'm going to listen to this whole album. And then when I get back to that, that song again, I'm going to just get that. There's that payoff of like even more love and, and things can grow on you from there. As long as even the that voice of song suck. off the follow up record, the voices, the voices, and it's clear. Cantrell can do it, but I'm sorry. I, 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 I interrupted you. No, you're fine. You're fine, man. Um, we brought it up earlier. This is in my final notes, though. Is I, I'm I don't know why uh, Mike Borden and Truilo are involved in this, other than the name factor. Uh, it's just I. Or they you know, needed to get kinda, paid too. Well, I, and that's you know I, I understand why they would do it. I would yeah. do it. You know. Yeah, me too. Yeah. But the the hey, um, should should we make it official right now that Jerry, we are available. Both Gene and I for your next solo album. Uh, I don't know whatever you want me to play: drums, bass, guitar. Uh, I'll probably help you finish some songs. You know, Gene, you're on board. I'm on board. Yeah, right. I think we can. I think with the three of us together could put out some pretty strong music, uh, Jerry. So you know, pick up the phone. That's all I'm going to say. Okay, <laughs> you got you got our numbers. Anyway, enough interrupting you. That's the sticking point for me though, because when I saw those guys were involved in that in this, I was like expecting to hear those guys in this and i'm not hearing that man like, you were nicer to, to drummers and bass players than i am good point well when you're talking there's some people that stand out like if you, you when you hear uh like a tony franklin you know his bass stands out or a, a billy sheehan or there's there's so many different players that there's plug and play guys and but then there's guys that stand out and robert Trujillo, i think okay he's got he's got some funk to him and there's nothing like that in here i'm not hearing this is a jerry cantrell record jerry does what jerry does but the other guys don't do what they do and mike borden he's got he's got a lot of things that he can bring i think as well yeah he's and, next level man and this and there's not nothing that of this there i can see why they roadrunner requested this thing to be cut down but I think Boy, it, when, it's a good version, to be honest with you. 
Yeah, I wonder if they brought a lot more balance to it. But boy, you really got me curious as far as what goes on on uh, when when you bring all the songs that Jerry had written for this. If you bring that out, um, is there something that maybe they they whiffed on? You know, sometimes when you hear like a B side, and it's like, why wasn't that on the album? It's like, well, because the record label didn't want it, so they threw it as a B side to the single. It's like, well, that's better than five other songs on the album. What the hell was the record label thinking? Damn it, Gene, you just cost me another twenty bucks. <laughs> well, no, I, I actually do too. I wanna I look, I can probably find it on YouTube if I just want to hear it. Yeah, I was gonna uh, say that's but, that's uh, what I'll be doing is I'll be streaming it to to because I, I, I'd like to hear a bookended. Because you know, the story is that, that one and two is his original sequence. Right. And so what we got is what you know he compromised on but uh as i heard tonight sometimes uh you know record labels and artists need to be have conversations in unison and uh and maybe that hopefully that's what happened here and that's my thoughts on it this came in at number 21 on rolling stones list my personal re-ranking this came in at 12 where did you put so 21 12 nods to rush what did you have going on here gene I'll jump it up to, let's put it up to 15. Okay. Let me switch topics a little bit here. I'm asking everybody this question too. Did grunge kill hair metal? Uh, you know, I don't, I used to always think that, but in hindsight or as I, as I grew in, in the years, I think it was more so that, that hair metal had run its course or pop metal, whatever you want to call it. I know some people don't care for the term hair metal like uh, Eddie Trunk per se. Um, I know D. Snyder likes it, right? Baco? Yeah. So, yeah, or he doesn't mind it. Um, no problem some, with it at all. <laughs> it's, I don't see it as a derogatory term for the most part. And it seems like, like even with grunge, you know, we get um, some of these bands, it doesn't feel like grunge, but they kind of get lumped in with that. And hair metal, I think, has, suffers from the same thing where some bands are, uh, weren't, I, I, I kind of have a hard time seeing them as hair metal because maybe I saw hair metal as a little, little bit more fluff. Uh-huh. But, like well, what the name is, in, the name implies it. Yes. What happens with when something becomes popular? What happens immediately is the record labels do their best to get sign every band that sounds like that, and try to milk the every single cent out of the the consumer as possible that they can, even if they're not providing a quality product. It just sounds similar to what's already right, been established yeah. as successful. And hair metal or pop metal, whatever you want to call it, suffered from that as well. And I think grunge did as as well. And that's why those things run their course. Um, well, I can and, tell you the grunge people I've talked to putting this together, uh, they seem to have come to terms with it a lot easier than some of the hair metal artists have. Now, that being said, hair metal as a term sort of implies the music doesn't matter. I don't know that grunge does. That's true. It it didn't kill it. It just it gave everybody or gave a lot of people something else to listen to or something else to focus on. It had this whole new energy to it. The it lyrically was it was apples and oranges compared to what it was. was going it was on more there. relevant to what people were dealing with. Yes, like I remember the first time I heard Master of Puppets, that blew me away because lyrics. I was listening to to them talking about drug addiction and stuff, and this wasn't what. Quite right was singing about. You didn't feel the same that. way when you first heard Cherry Pie. <laughs> uh, no, I don't think so. I don't. I don't remember. What about what Up All Night by I, Slaughter? That was like that's my life, except for not. 
Not yeah, exactly. I couldn't I couldn't relate. No, I know I know I know where you're going, and that's not really a shot at either one of those songs because whatever. No, uh, that there was more of an escapism to what they were doing. And frankly, do we really want to totally relate to the words of Alice in Chains? <laughs> you know, we might be dead. Hopefully not. Yeah, hopefully not. Especially when you're talking about that. But you can there also could be learning points too. Where you see somebody's the darkness in someone else, somebody else, and their experiences, and go, wow, there's a lesson to be learned there. Instead of following that fucking path, which so many people do, like, I want to do what my what the people I admire do, even if it's if it killed them. <laughs> I don't understand that methodology or that brain, that thought process. Well, thank you so much for coming on the the show, Gene. But uh, I I think it's time to get out of here. You want to roll? Whatever. All right, man. Never mind. I felt that up. exact same way about uh, porn. That's good. Yeah. Um, Anything anyway, you want to share as far as what what what's you know experiment and learn. Yeah. <laughs> you got any tips? I have one tip. You want to see it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's that kind of show, people. Let me blow my screen up here. quick. <laughs> What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? 
Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.